Hello, listeners, and Merry Christmas. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Rick Goldschmidt, who, among other things, is the official biographer and historian for Rankin-Bass Productions. Rankin-Bass is the gold standard for animated Christmas specials. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, The Year Without a Santa Claus, and several other holiday favorites still hold top spots with people of all ages. Rick has authored several books on this subject, and his depth of knowledge is no less than amazing. In this conversation, Rick and I discuss Rankin-Bass Christmas specials and why they have stood the test of time. Uh, I am honored to be sitting here with Rick Goldschmidt. Uh, I am uh, back in the greater Chicago area and uh, was lucky to get this, uh, this sit down, this interview. And Rick, welcome to Chewing the Scenery. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Um, now, in my intro, I'm sure I will have mentioned that you are the official historian and biographer of the Rankin-Bass specials. Right. Is, is that, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, it. that's it. That's accurate. Okay. How, how, uh, how long were you a biographer, a collector, and an enthusiast of Rankin-Bass stuff before you became the official? Well, I really wasn't any of those things. Um, I went to Columbia College in Chicago. My degree is in illustration. And um, basically what I wanted to do was humorous illustration. So I was interested mostly in the work of Jack Davis, who was my favorite artist. And uh, a lot of people don't know that Jack Davis, besides being in Mad Magazine, did many, many movie posters, Time Magazine covers, TV Guide covers. I mean, he was a very prolific artist and made tons of money doing it. He had a rep, uh, Gerald Cullen and Rapp in New York, which was like a major rep to have as an artist. So he, the work just came into him on a fax machine back then, and he would just bat it out every day. And then he'd go in his boat and uh, fish or um, go golfing. So that was kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a humorous illustrator. And I also liked the works of Paul Coker Jr., who was also out of Mad Magazine. And I knew Paul designed Frosty the Snowman. And I knew Jack designed Mad Monster Party. And that kind of piqued my curiosity as to what happened to Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass. Because, you know, you read about... Hannah and Barbera, Walt Disney, Chuck Jones, but you didn't hear anything about Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass. I didn't know if they were alive. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't know <laughs> what happened to them. And Jack said, I'm still doing work for Arthur. Um, give Paul Coker a call, and, and he has his number. And I got his phone number. I got Arthur Rankin's phone number from Paul Coker. And I called him up in Bermuda, and I said, there really should be a book. And he said, send me two chapters. Oh, wow. And that was it. He, he was a, a very uh, big producer, which meant his time was very limited. So mm -hmm. the phone call probably lasted five minutes. And he probably got hundreds of phone calls from people who said, hey, I want to do a book. I want to do this. And they never sent them anything. So I sent them two chapters right away. He liked that. And then he sent me a cassette 
a mi little mini cassette recording of his how he got into the business in the mail and then from there I just started scrounging everything up and I became the historian for the studio because there was no such thing they threw their stuff out in dumpsters oh, when they moved from uh, building to building in New York so I kind of it was sort of a calling I would say more more or less it wasn't like I had ever planned it and I just kind of fell into it and it just worked out yeah it sounds like it almost became a crusade <laughs> right well, what was neat about it was my interest, my passion is in art. Yeah. So Jack Davis and Paul Coker and then Maury Laws who did the music. And then there was Don Duga who was the storyboard artist and Arthur and Jules and all these talented people. Romeo Muller, I contacted his brother Gene and Gene opened up the archives and it was just so interesting and, and so cool to be involved with all those people, you know? Right. Um, I guess a, a, one of the first questions that came to mind, because um, being somebody who really cares about art and really cares about film, I think about lost paintings, uh, films that were lost, films that were almost lost to time, uh, the Spanish Dracula from 1931, <laughs> right. Nosferatu from 1922, things that these gems that we almost lost. So my question, uh, you know, that the first one I, that I really want to dive into is how much information and memorabilia uh, was almost lost to time uh, if you hadn't taken such an interest? Well, um, most of it, as far as the, um, the paraphernalia, the, yeah. the photographs, the... Um, recordings a lot there's a lot of recordings like what you just described audio recordings that i have of projects that didn't see the light of day there's there were puppets made for different projects that never were produced like for jerry lewis and um, there's a punch and judy puppet set that's in bermuda there's a whole bunch of stuff like that and and then it it takes a little detective work to find out what actually happened because when I would ask Arthur Rankin, you know, what happened to that, he would be like, oh, uh, Edgar Bergen died. You know, like he didn't remember the specifics of what happened, so I'd have to kind of dig around and f try to find out what really happened to these projects and why they weren't produced. Um, so there is quite a bit of material like that that I was able to decipher and put into my books. So this turned into detective work for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm always learning uh, every day, um, whether it be from uh, fan posts on social media, things right. that I didn't know existed, um, or, you know, just talking to somebody that worked them. Um, Bob Camp, who worked on Ren and Stimpy, he worked for them in the 80s. Oh, wow. So he, he was able to relay some things to me that I didn't really know about when they were making Thundercats and Silverhawks and Tiger Sharks and some <laughs> of that stuff. Um, so you're always learning, and, and that's fun, too, you know? Right. Um, Probably the best reward I get is always during the holidays because uh, 
once September rolls around and things start cooking, um, I could be asked to be on a TV show or a radio show. Um, I get a lot more orders. I hear from fans. I find out why they like the stuff so much. It just becomes a very big holiday season for me every year. <laughs> right. And I enjoy that. You know, I enjoy mostly being a part of something that was so endearing oh, yes. to, uh, to fans. Look, if you put on Santa Claus is Coming to Town, it's like, wow, this, this special really has a lot to offer. You know, it, it, it has a charming story and, and great characters and beautiful songs. Yes. Put one foot in front of the other and all of that. And that stuff applies to our daily uh, lives. Um, people say they, they sing Rankin-Bass songs to get over um, emotional problems and family problems and struggles and things. So it's <laughs> right. like it really means so much more than just animated um, family entertainment. And uh, Rankin-Bass also was for the whole family not just kids absolutely and you know this takes me back to um you know i grew up not two miles from from where you currently are and, <laughs> and you grew up in this area didn't you yeah yeah and, uh, and alsip is where i spent most of my time okay so that is not far from here at all yeah so you grew up with uh, like i did with uh friday nights uh on wfld creature features oh yeah and uh for us you know, that was a happy place. Yeah. Uh, family time. You know, we would order pizza. <laughs> we would watch Creature Features, get some of the old Universal Monster movies. And then, um, you know, the, a lot of that was during summer. And, uh, you know, it was year round. But, you know, I, my memories are, you know, during summer. But <laughs> when I think of what was winter like, uh, it really, as far as the happy place and far, as far as like that, that comfortable feeling, that, that warm feeling, it, it starts when those specials show up in the TV guide. Right. You see the, the half page ad or the quarter page ad and you say, it's coming. I'm going to get to see Rudolph. I'm going to get to see Frosty. And it's all Rankin Bass. Yeah, I think my parents had a lot to do with that too. Especially my mom made sure that we would watch them. Right. And they became a tradition. And uh, I kind of put them in the back of my mind um, during my college years and high school years. I wasn't so... Um, interested in them um, until I came back to them uh, right. years later and I, I discovered that there was so much talent there right. in the mix. It's, it's incredible. And, and you mentioned creature features. Um, as a kid, I was uh, a big fan of local television. You know, the WGN shows, Garfield oh, yeah. Goose and Friends. Uh, which all actually showed Rankin Bass shows in in the show, uh, the New Adventures of Pinocchio and the Tales of the Wizard of Oz were the first things that Rankin Bass did, and they did them for kitty shows across the country, syndicated um, shows for for local television. So that local television, Bozo Circus. And Ray the original Spengooly. Yeah. Um, they were big to me. And I became friends with Bill Jackson from uh, BJ and Dirty Dragon and yeah. Cartoon Town. And I wrote some things about him. And, and he loved Rankin Bass. Of course. You know, he loved the Bumble. And, he you know, all of this stuff was endearing to him. So 
I mean, it's really weird how things that that you enjoy and and treasure um, all go together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's something. And as we talk about this, I think uh, we may have some younger listeners. Maybe we don't. But uh, but appointment viewing, as as it's become known, yeah. isn't a thing anymore. Like you can you can literally uh, pull up and consume any media you want, anytime you want. But right. we used to have to wait another 365 days till we saw Rudolph or Frosty again. Well, the interesting thing is a lot of the people that I hear from now, a lot of the Rankin Bass fans are watching these things daily. Yeah. Uh, more than I do because um, they just enjoy watching them so much. I, I do have a lot of um, customers that have autistic children. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have particular characters that they're drawn to, like Frosty the Snowman or Rudolph. And it really means a lot to them, too. Um, you know, I have to personalize their books a certain way because they really, it means so much to them. And, uh, you know, that, that's what I'm hearing as, as a uh, historian or biographer. I'm hearing from people uh, about what, they like what shows they like how they watch them and so forth and you're right the appointment <laughs> viewing is is non-existent and when they show them on the networks now they're always time compressed edit it and a million commercials oh, during yeah. it and it's not the same experience we had uh, when we saw them for the first time i mean they obviously they had commercials and they they were uh, the early ones were promoting GE products like Rudolph and uh, Return to Oz, uh, strictly GE household pro- products. And then later in the 70s, with Santa Claus is coming to town, Play School got involved and there were games and things like that being advertised during the Rankin-Bass uh, shows. But now... Corp- corporations are involved, like Target and and Marshall Fields or <laughs> Macy's or whatever. Right, they've kind of taken over. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess that uh, that really kind of uh, leads me to the question of how badly did they miss the boat uh, not merchandising back in say the early seventies? Uh, that could have been huge. Right, right, exactly. Um, when I got involved and wrote my first book in 1997, I started hearing from companies because of the book. It put an idea into their heads that this would make good merchandise. And immediately I heard from Stuffins, which was a beanbag, sort of a beanie baby type thing, which was big in the, in the late 90s. Right. And um, they did a whole bunch of product for CVS pharmacies, which we didn't have back then. It was more East Coast. Right. And um, they started with Rudolph and Frosty and then branched out into Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And and now there's just like has been an explosion of, of product that they, they could have had out in the 70s and the 60s. But... Um, they missed the boat on that, and um, the good news is now I'm involved with another company that's trying to bring everything together under one umbrella, 
and give it more direction than what it has had for the last 20 years, 20, 30 years. Um, because it's all over the place. You see cheap stuff at uh, the dollar store. You'll see um, decorations at Menards, you know, for the lawn. And a lot of it's cheap, and it doesn't really look like the characters and, how, and all of that. I guess that, that was another question I had was, how did you feel about the uh, the figures they did? I, I think it's now been a little over 15 years, you know, the ones that were... I don't know, uh, four to six inches tall, depending on the characters. Like for, the for, action figures? Yeah, the Rudolph ones. Yeah, um, there was a guy named Bob Plant who was involved with that, with playing Mantis, and then they became Round Two okay. and Forever Fun. And, you know, you, and he actually came to one of my book signings when I had the Rudolph and Santa puppets with us. And... Uh, he was genuinely a fan, so he, he gave it a good direction, and, and, and then it kind of got lost. I think he might have left the, the companies, and then they were, like, changing the colors and the characters <laughs> and putting the same molds out, and, and, and you know, it kind of got beat to death, like beating a dead horse. Um, so there's good things and bad things from the merchandising i think the best thing was Inesco did a bunch of figurines and they saw me on tv on wgn and called me into their their uh, they're in itasca illinois so they had a showroom there and they had all the rudolph figurines set up around the tv set that was looping rudolph it was really cool it was like a, a mall and they said, you know, do you want to get involved with these? And, and I, I did a bunch of designs for them because I'm, I'm an artist. And um, they did the Here Comes Peter Cottontail line. Right. But it only lasted like one year, and now they're kind of sought after. Um, but I helped with that. And I tried to get them to do Mad Monster Party, too. But I guess they really weren't that familiar with it, and it was more of a a cult thing so they didn't want to touch that but um you know there's been a lot of good stuff and a lot of you know junky stuff over the years <laughs> right? too yeah yeah i feel like um i had a uh, a good collection of of that first iteration of of the good ones oh yeah and uh well that got lost along the way i won't go into that <laughs> but uh i i since bought a pack and I want to say it was a target that they were probably about two or three inch characters. And those mm -hmm. are the ones I'll, I'll set them up, uh, you know, on the TV stand or somewhere sure. in the entryway of the house. And I'll just put down a little fake snow. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's that, uh, it's that official start to the Christmas season for me when, uh, the first time I decide I'm going to put on some Christmas music and, uh, we have a, a vintage aluminum Christmas tree, so oh, I, I do too. Yeah, I feel like I'm a kid again, you know. Yeah. The funny thing about that first uh, issue from playing Mantis of the Rudolph figures, they spelled Hermes' name wrong on the packaging. <laughs> they spelled it Herbie, H-E-R-B-I-E, -E, and I was the one that corrected them on that. And the next year they had it right, and they've had it right ever since. H-E-R-M-E-Y is the way it's spelled in the script and and uh, the actual name of the character. Herbie wants to be a chiropractor. <laughs> right. It um, sounds it's like Herbie, Herbie. and I want to be a dentist. Right. 
It sounds like Herbie in, you know, in that scene where they're yelling around the, the table making the toys, but right. But uh, it was Hermie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that um, that special, I would say, Santa Claus is Coming to Town and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, those two specials, right. uh, that sets the tone for me. Uh, I'm sure it does for you. Oh, um, yeah. Do you feel like... Um, I mean, there's there's an obvious charm to this style of animation, the animagic, the stop yeah. the stop motion. Uh, it's it's a different thing from what Willis O'Brien used to do, what Ray Harryhausen used mm-hmm. to do. It's a separate thing entirely. Right. Uh, is that charm? Is that aesthetic <laughs> lost? Do you think? Like, we, will we ever have that again? I don't think so. Um, it came out of Japan, and it came. Because Arthur went to Japan and he knew that they had this art style that he really thought would work well in, in American entertainment. And um, they were wizards with stop motion there. The, the man that Arthur hired when uh, he started the New Adventures of Pinocchio at Dentsu was Tadahito Moshinaga, Tad Moshinaga. If you look him up, he was the father of stop motion animation in Japan. Wow. So all the other animators looked up to him as the master. And uh, it shows in, in the work. And even if the animation isn't as fluid as, you know, what you can do with computers today, it still has a charm and a style that's all their own. And not only did they have a great style of animation with Animagic but but they had um, personality in the art form. Personality didn't really exist in Willis O'Brien and um, George Pell mm-hmm. and uh, what Ray Harryhausen was doing. You know Ray Harryhausen was doing monsters and uh, you know, they didn't talk. They didn't have a personality. They were monsters in those movies of the 50s. And in Puppet Tunes, you had characters, but they weren't really talking and becoming a, life, a living character. And what Rankin-Bass did was they got Burl Ives to be Sam the Snowman. And most people know Burl Ives from... Rudolph, Sam the Snowman. (laughs) They got Fred Astaire. They didn't get these people just because they were famous people. They got them because their voices had this animatable quality, like Mickey Rooney and uh, Jimmy Durante and, you know, all these great people. So it it was kind of their niche to get good famous voice actors that would work for animation and that had not been done prior to the Rankin Bass specials. And I I would say to that um, probably the last time we had actual stop motion that carried with it some you know some true uh, three-dimensional feeling and some some lively quality and, and that charm was probably Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. That and uh, Corpse Bride. Right. Okay. And uh, James and the Giant Peach and uh, a few others, but not as famous as Nightmare Before Christmas. And, and then 
the nice thing about Nightmare Before Christmas was the people working on it were big Rankin Bass fans. You can tell. Yeah. <laughs> in, um, in, in the best ways. Joe Rant, who helped me with my Rudolph book and became a huge part of Pixar, um, I talked to him many times on the phone, and, and he was very enamored with Rankin Bass. And I would send them rare stuff, and they would screen it for the Pixar employees. Once a week, they would have a screening, and they'd show some Rankin Bass, some rare Rankin Bass stuff. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that, and Arthur liked um, Nightmare Before Christmas, um, even though it was a little darker than than their work um, he could see there was an appreciation for their work and he appreciated their style you know because um, it was by then it was computer assisted right but um, it still had the more natural look of 3d animation than we get today you know with the cgi today i think it went off the rails about 10 years ago because um when Pixar was its own company, and I used to de deal with them directly, when Pixar would send me the art of books and they would draw on them and everything, I could see that the story was the most important thing to them. They wanted to make sure the story was exactly right. They would rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and put that heart into it and that warmth. They would outdo themselves each picture that they did uh, up until they got to up. And then things started going downhill. <laughs> Disney took over and a lot of those people that cared about the story left. And now they got these young people right out of college who may, might be able to handle a computer well, but they don't know anything about story writing and, and how to build the story. Um, Andrew Stanton, who was um, who won the Academy Award for Wall-E and, and Finding Nemo, he told me, and I think he wrote it in my Rudolph book, that, that um, he put Erg... Was it Erg <laughs> in, the, in the Toy Story movie? He had the uh, the the villain become the father of <laughs> of Buzz, I think. Um, you know, there was all this careful planning to reform characters, sort of like they did in the Rankin Bass shows with Romeo Muller's writing. And and it's more satisfying to have villains reform than to kill them. Right. Yeah, villains are handled very differently in Rankin Bass. Right. And in, it's surprising to me that more um, production companies haven't figured this out yet. Right. That this this uh, redemption arc that they go through is is preferable to just like stomping them out or killing <laughs> them. Killing them off. Yeah, and um, even the worst Rankin Bass villains, like the Burgermeister Meisterburger, <laughs> Paul Fries. He he doesn't reform. His picture falls off the wall, and they throw it in the garbage. But for a minute there, you get to see his goofy side when they give him a yo-yo. <laughs> and you could tell he's not all bad. You know, he starts playing with that yo-yo and acting really crazy. Um, so they were careful to, to not make them hateable villains, 
they actually were sort of endearing. And people will say, oh, I like the Burgermeister Meisterburger, <laughs> or I like the Winter Warlock. You know, it's like they had a, a nice quality to them. It, was, it wasn't just single dimension bad. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, your, uh, your company is called Miser Brothers? Yeah. yeah Wh- which one are you? Uh, <laughs> well, actually, my uh, my business partner passed away uh, a few years ago, unfortunately. Wes Garlitz, okay. who who basically I started the company with, and he designed and and helped with some of the research. He designed the books and the products that we put out. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we always loved the Miser Brothers, Heat Miser and Snow Miser, and in fact. Believe it or not, those are the two fam- most famous Rankin Bass characters. Are they? More so than Rudolph or Frosty or Santa Claus. When I'm at a convention and people are walking by, it doesn't matter if they're three or they're 60 or if they came from Venezuela or they came from Oak Lawn, they're going to say, Heat Miser, Snow Miser. They right. recognize them right away. So I think uh, they're the most popular out of the bunch. Yeah, Altoids even used heat miser on their <laughs> on their cinnamon Altoids. Right, right. And and Hallmark is still doing. This year they have a snow miser ornament, and then next year they'll have a heat miser the same way. He's like in a glass snowflake, and they've had them in their thrones, and they've had them dancing. They've had the minions. I mean, they can go on and on and on forever doing heat miser and snow miser ornaments. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, as far as I can tell, there's there's no <laughs> need for them to slow down. Right, right. They're still selling. How are the rights to the specials being handled? Well, um, GE owned everything at the outset. Uh, Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass didn't own their their own films their specials um and ge started an entertainment division called tomorrow entertainment and they eventually sold all the specials um to broadway video which was lauren michaels and then it went to classic media and dreamworks and now universal has the specials they don't necessarily have the character rights which I don't know if they're aware of or, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly kind of schooling people on, on this. And then Warner Brothers has the later specials, like the Year Without a Santa Claus and, and so forth. Um, so I would say that um, the films are actually not in the right hands, uh, hmm. unfortunately. Because they did Blu-rays on, um, Universal did Blu-rays on Rudolph and Santa Claus is Coming to Town about four years ago. And at first they said, we got to get Rick. He's, he's a must, you know. He's got all the collection, you know, the archives. We got to get him. And then they got these other people involved. And then I actually got ousted from doing the Blu-rays. 
and I was like, well, they're going to suck. <laughs> and they did. And they got people on them doing commentary and, and uh, talking about the shows. Some of them that I know personally said they don't even like Rankin Bass. So they wow. did it just to be on these things, I guess, to boost their their ego. Or I, I'm not sure why they did them. Maybe to make the money that that Universal paid them. So... You can see how these things can easily go in the wrong direction under the wrong guidance in the wrong hands. And it's a shame because, you know, Rankin, Rankin Bass to me is on the same level as Walt Disney and Hanna-Barbera and the Warner Brothers cartoons. It has a huge following of, of fans. So you want to do the best you can do with them you know they're still not showing the right version of rudolph on cbs no so it's all messed up edited scenes that haven't been shown since 1964 um you know I, there's a million things i could fix with just being involved um, just being an advisor advisor i could fix that special so that they could say this is newly restored scenes not seen in over f almost 60 years now um you know why wouldn't they want to do that but they have never done it and there are always playback options on on blu-rays uh for example th this this really doesn't fit into rankin bass but mm -hmm. um, there is a, uh, a a animal cruelty free version of cannibal holocaust <laughs> that you can hmm. play where you don't see uh the animal cruelty right with, which um it's you know, something I don't want to see, uh, right. unfortunately have seen, uh, but uh, for a, uh, a work of fiction to have some real uh, animal death in it, some people just don't want to see that. Right. And some people may want to watch uh, the original version of a, of a movie or, or a special like this, and it should be able to just toggle from this version, that version, just toggle over and hit play. Uh, right. I think that would be great. Yeah, and uh, another thing, uh, Frosty the Snowman, the first three years, three or four years that it aired, my late friend June Foray Donovan voiced Karen. Now, um, she also appeared on the, the record album that MGM put out. So in 73... They decided, the network decided, um, we're going to take this little girl from, her name was Susan Davidson, from our version of Miracle on 34th Street, which aired that year on CBS. It starred um, Sebastian Cabot as Santa Claus, so maybe right. you'll, you might remember that. Right, yes. We're going to take that little girl because she's such a good actress and we're going to overdub her voice for Karen and Frosty the Snowman. And that's the way it's been ever since. So to your point on the Blu-ray, you should be able to watch it with Susan Davidson's voice and then toggle over to June Foray's voice right. and hear that version too, um, which they've never done. Now for listeners who don't know, and I'm, I'm glad to know you got to know June. Uh, she, oh, yeah. She voiced Rocky the Flying Squirrel, among other yes. things. Yes. She's on my voicemail. Um, oh. She did Rocky for me, and the, 
Natasha. Oh, yeah. She did. Uh, she was the voice on The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and The Girl From U.N.C.L.E. that would say, our man from uncle will be back right after these messages. Oh, that's great. And I had her do that for my voicemail. Rick Goldschmidt, our man from uncle. Oh, that's uh, great. So she did She did all Dis- Disney witches. Wasn't she and, Talky Tina in that Twilight Zone yes, episode? Yeah. Oh, man, She's, that she one. She loops voices in a lot of television shows. Like she did Get Smart when there, there's an <laughs> announcer in the airport. It's her, oh, you know, wow. paging someone. Um, you know, a lot of different things she did. So it was really nice to be friends with her. And I got to see her house and what she saved from Walter Lance and all kinds of neat stuff. So you, you've had a peek behind the curtain on a lot of things, haven't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I even um, got to have meetings with uh, Joe Barbera and Bill Hanna in their offices and then that's when I became friends with Iwo Takamoto and uh, Jerry Eisenberg. Oh, wow. And Jerry's still living, and he worked on the Flintstones. Yeah. And his father worked on a lot of Hanna-Barbera comic book covers and things. So, I mean, it, it just branches out into all kinds of different things. Um, my relationship with uh, Rankin-Bass you know everybody knows it everybody loves it so it's like it it's opened a lot of doors to to meet people so do you feel like uh the same way that star wars is being handed down generation <laughs> to generation do you feel like there is enough of the the appreciation and the love for rankin bass being handed oh, down oh yeah oh yeah i like uh, to think so but I, I but i might be deluded <laughs> well the the way that i know is Will I be busy from September to January, like I always am? Right. And even during the worst of times, the you know pandemic and inflation and all of that, I still see there's a demand, there's an interest. It's not dying off where people are just forgetting about it, you know. And I, a large part of that is look at AMC. They had marathons in recent years. They're even calling it Rankin Bass Weekend. Oh, that's great. And uh, uh, then you got Turner Classic Movies showing Mad Monster Party, The Daydreamer, and uh, The Wacky World of Mother Goose. And when they did that, they used some of my images on their website and email. And then they had me tweet during the movies, answering questions and telling tidbits about the movie so So you're live tweeting during this yeah live tweeting oh man for tcm so it just keeps growing you know it's like it it has a long life uh on the shelf i guess yeah it i could say that although there's a um there's a uh, an appreciation people should have for something that's vintage it's at the same time timeless right in a way well I find myself, people ask me, why do I collect all this stuff that I have? You know, I was on Collector's Call with Lisa Welchel um, in different magazines, Remind Magazine, and um, they want me to take pictures of my spy toys. Um, I just heard from them yesterday. And my Western collection's going to be in the July or August issue that's going to be coming in the mail next week. So... 
people ask me why are you why do you collect that stuff you know like what's the reason for it and it really is that you want to go back to your childhood when things were simpler and you were you know happier you had less worries and you felt safe and Rankin Bass is the same way you know it's like uh, you know, uh, what's interesting, some of these fans say, you know, I watched that with my mom, and my mom's been dead for, you know, 15 years. So every time I sit down and watch Rudolph, it makes me think of my mom, you know. Yeah. It brings a tear to my eye. Um, they've been around so long, so many generations, that it has all these different meanings for people. Yeah, and I read something recently that somebody said Generation X is the most nostalgic generation. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I kind of feel like maybe they're right, but maybe for good reasons. Right. You know, there are things to be missed about. Uh, I remember as a kid the first time I got a battery-operated robot or the Planet of the Apes action figures. Right. And this was the first wave of cool stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, well, arguably you could say G.I. Joe was, but, but the stuff that was uh, more exciting than that. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a generic character. It was a specific character from a movie that really knocked your socks off. Right. That ending of Planet of the Apes, when you saw it televised, <laughs> yeah. or maybe you saw it at the drive-in, oh, yeah. the starlight was right near here. Yeah. Yeah. The st- yeah. Oh, the drive-in was a whole nother thing for us, you know. Yeah. We went to see Disney movies in our pajamas, and <laughs> we we got ice cream and all kinds of fun things. They used to have those uh, swings yeah. with all the cartoon characters around, uh, like Woody Woodpecker and oh, yeah. all these characters up at the drive-in. So, I mean, we did come out of a generation that it doesn't exist today. Everything's about cell phones and computers and social media. It's not about being out on a swing set at a drive-in, you know, getting uh, pizza uh, during the movie. You know, it's not the same as uh, what we've experienced. Yeah, it makes me think of that Twilight Zone, to to bring that up again. Uh, (laughs) What was it? Um, Oh, goodness, I'm trying to think of the name of it. But the guy is on a train trip, and he gets off in like Woodbury or some oh, town yeah. like that. Yeah. I think it's like Next Stop Woodbury or something. Right. Um, I'm sure there's listeners screaming at, you know, <laughs> at me right now, but I, I think it's something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and the guy just wants what he used to have, a simpler time right. and, and uh, all the things that he missed. And I feel like no. I don't want it back. I kind of want to have it now and give it to another generation. I used to call it the baby boomer generation, which I think was before Generation X. And I used to say the baby boomers are what's driving this merchandise that 20 years ago was real prevalent, you know, where they were putting out Hanna-Barbera toys and T-shirts. And there was just an explosion of old vintage stuff coming out all the time and it's sort of tailed off now i noticed yeah where they're not putting out so much you know like stuff from the batman tv show as they are from the new movie that came out that nobody really saw or remembers (laughs) and it's just uh i hope we don't lose that you know that Generation X and baby boomer reflection of the past because 
when you forget about the past, the the future is is not as happy. Right. Yeah, I, f- I feel like this can be handed down, and it should. Yeah. For sure. It definitely needs to survive. And yeah. And that's what I've been doing with, at least with the Rankin-Bass stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the the Batman TV series. Um, a few years ago, I was at a I was at C2E2 when that was still the convention mm-hmm. here in Chicago, and I went to this um, booth where this guy was selling toys, and it was a lot of Matchbox and Hot Wheels cars. And I remember back in the 70s when my older brother and I were kids, we were always looking for a Batmobile, but it didn't seem like they ever licensed one. Right. So we would find the closest thing, like a black <laughs> Cadillac or a purple Formula One car, and we'd pretend that was the Batmobile. Right. So I was at C2E2, and I saw this guy had like three or four different <laughs> versions of the 66 Batmobile. Yeah. The famous uh, George Barris uh, design. And so I bought one of each, and I gave my brother one. I said, now we both have the Batmobile. <laughs> I uh, I have so many fond memories as a kid about things like that. I got a Batmobile, a uh, Husky, uh, sort of a matchbox television Batmobile from a grab bag at school. And this is in the early 70s. Right. Uh, where we could only spend like a dollar for the grab bag yet. And I think a girl got somehow got the Batmobile and I traded her for it. Oh, nice. And just to have that Batmobile while the show was on TV to play with it was a special memory. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, George Barris licensed the Batmobile first in more recent years when he was still living. And then all the other, uh, you know, Adam West and Burt Ward and Cesar Romero estate and all the other estates licensed their likenesses finally. Yeah. Which didn't come out during the, sh- the series or even long after the series. So it's kind of like Rudolph and, uh, and Frosty and all those things. It took my book to generate some interest to get the products out into the marketplace. Yeah. And, and I would say, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a, a really good piece of work on your part to, uh, to set the ball rolling like that. Well, it, it was fun because I was a part of it, too. Yeah. You know, that uh, Inesco got me involved and Bob Plant over there at Playing Mantis and um, a few other companies, Stuffins. Yeah. And uh, I also helped with uh, sort of a co-producer on the... Santa Claus is Coming to Town and Frosty Soundtrack CD. And then some of the early DVDs and Blu-rays I was involved with, like The Year Without a Santa Claus. There's a nice documentary on there that I helped with. And Mad Monster Party, the Blu-ray and DVD. So it's really cool to be a part of the products when they when they are done right. Most of them aren't done right, but... <laughs> There's some good ones out there too. So now, um, one of the uh, almost full-time co-hosts on the podcast, a uh, young woman named Ziggy, uh, she is um, she's working on becoming a screenwriter. She's going to college for this right now. And uh, something that I remember, I interviewed uh, Joe Bob Briggs, and I asked him if he had any advice for. Um, for young filmmakers, people aspiring to, uh, to break into it. And the most important piece of advice he could give was 
you need to focus on your writing. He says, out of all the things you could do in filmmaking, writing doesn't cost you anything. Right. You sit down with a, a pen and paper or your computer or, your, or even your phone, and you can, you can think and you can write, and then you can rework your stories. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially right. said that it, it costs you nothing and, and this is what you should focus on. And, and to that point, um, could you talk a little bit about how Romeo Muller's uh, writing was perhaps the most important part of these specials? Yeah, well, that's the foundation of, of every Rankin-Bass TV special and film is the writing. And it's also the most mysterious part of the history because when you have a good writer, um, things just come together very quickly. Um, And Rankin-Bass specials had to be made very quickly. It wasn't like today where they go through focus groups and all this other rigmarole. Arthur Rankin would go into the office at NBC or ABC or CBS and say, hey, I got this idea that we want to do a, a special on The Little Drummer Boy, the song The Little Drummer Boy. You know that song, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and they would be like, okay, we'll get it on the air. Um, we have a slot open, but we need the script like Monday. And I just wrote about this in my Little Drummer Boy article for uh, Retro Fan magazine. Um, Arthur then called Romeo up. Romeo lived in uh, High Falls, New York. Arthur was in Manhattan. And he got a stenographer or a secretary to take down the story over the phone. (laughs) Wow. You know, come up with the story over the phone, you know, first develop some characters Aaron and Baba and all these little characters that would be in the special Ali and Ben Haramed and and come up with the storyline and that's what they did they he came up with the storyline very quickly but he always had heart and warmth and um, wrote for everybody and and it just so happened that's what the stories needed to last 50, 60 years, you know? So I would say the writing is the most important part of the whole thing. If you don't have a good story that has heart and warmth, you don't have anything. And, and I think even though I say this and I write about it in articles in my books and things, today's entertainment people still don't understand that you know what they understand is the dollar you know uh, how to make money will this sell in the Chinese market will it sell on streaming will it you know we want to make something that they want so consequently the heart and the warmth gets thrown away and let's go for these cheap laughs and let's make it woke and you know all these other things so that it will sell not so much that it will last that's the difference and i have to think from like some of the some of the lessons taught in these specials in romeo's stories uh it seemed like he understood marginalized people you know and 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 had had something 
to say about not doing that to somebody, you know, right. to, to understand people who aren't just like you and to give them a chance. Right. That was the key to be, to have the characters be sort of misfits or underdogs or they didn't fit in at the beginning. They had to figure out why they're special, why they do fit, why they, they do triumph in the end. And that was key to these specials, you know, because when you watch something over and over again, like we have, you know, we've watched Frosty and Rudolph, you know, multiple times. I don't know the number of times, but um, you can't do that with something that doesn't have that redemption at the end. You know, you want to see that, you know, psychologically, you want to see a character develop and figure out their worth to themselves and, and to the world. And, and they do that in every one of the Rankin-Bass specials. Uh, so they're very easy to watch hundreds of times for people. Yeah. Some people watch them every day. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I've been known to watch them out of season quite a bit. Yeah. And I do have, <laughs> I do have the soundtrack to Rudolph on my phone. So, oh. so if I ever feel like I want to put in my AirPods and listen to something, something you, upbeat and happy, yeah. and take you back to the yeah the good times, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that Romeo wrote that way because that helps me keep their history in the public eye you know if he didn't write like that and it was it wasn't ageless and it was you know of its time I wouldn't be able to write books and sell books and talk about them and so on and so forth so I'm glad he had that in mind and it makes it kind of special for me because, you know, when you sit down and you watch Santa Claus is coming to town and you you just kind of get, I don't get teared up, but I, I feel like this is magic. There's, there's like an extra layer of magic to the Rankin-Bass specials. You can talk about the music, you can talk about the look, you can talk about the characters, but there's also this extra layer in there that makes it something special. It is greater than the sum of its parts. Right, right, and uh, and that makes me feel uh, happy that I chose to do what I do. You know, I don't think I could do it just to make money. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> if you were just doing it to make money, eventually you wouldn't be making enough money for yourself, and you'd just do something else. You know, and. Uh, I'm glad it's not like that for me. Have you, um, and, and this would probably be a good question to end on, for, you know, for talking about Christmas specials. Mm -hmm. Have you met people from other walks of life, uh, different religious upbringings or different cultural upbringings who, due in, in part to these specials, fell in love with Christmas? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have people come to my shows and... Some of them buy multiple books. <laughs> and, and 
and they want to make sure the books are in perfect condition and it, it just takes on a, diff, a different meaning to them and yes they they're not all um, you know one religion one uh, you know <laughs> well, yeah, walk of from life. all walks of life yeah, yeah they are and Rankin Bass kind of drew that that in I think it's it's more about the storytelling and, and the quality of the characters that makes it universal, I would say. Yeah. Um, like I said, everybody recognizes the Heat Miser and Snow Miser. doesn't matter from what country or any age. The, the little kids will be pointing them out from <laughs> walking by at, at a Comic-Con. So... I think they're going to last forever because of that. That's great. Well, Rick, thank you for uh, talking about the Christmas specials with us. And, sure. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna encourage all the listeners to, uh, you know, even if it's not the best DVD or the best <laughs> presentation, go see these things again. It's well, that time of year. And they can always come to my books and uh, and read about how they were put together piece by piece at uh, miserbros.com. Excellent. Well, thank you, Rick. Thank you.